The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. Before we get started, I got a commercial to do here, okay? I get, I'm get i getting a lot of questions about the conference, like, when is it? And I'm thinking, it's on the website, okay? So please, if you're interested in the conference, check the website. The speakers are listed there. We don't have all the information up yet, but all the information, you know, speakers, what they're speaking on, that should all be up soon. But you can book your, uh, your stay at the hotel right now. You need to call the hotel, um, talk to Tom. He'll set up the room and give you the special price for Berea, Berean, and uh, I'm excited. We're going to have a great conference this year. we got a good lineup of speakers. Uh, it's been two years, so we're excited to get back together with our friends, our family from around the country, and just enjoy the time together. So looking forward to that, people. All right. We're continuing this morning our study of 1 Thessalonians, and I want to talk to you this morning about modeling Yeshua. Where can people in our culture see Christ? The only place that men today can see Christ is in the Gospels, but they'd have to read the Bible to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Or in the lives of believers who are modeling Christ. Mm -hmm. And since most people don't ever read their Bible, a lot of that falls on believers to show Christ to the world. That's our calling. We're to be Christ here on this earth, when they see us, they are to see the Lord. One of the unique things about this letter is that nowhere in Paul's epistles do we find any stronger expressions of his love and affection for the saints than what we have right here in 1 Thessalonians. And this was an exceptional church, and we'll see that as we go through. We'll hopefully see that this morning. And we look last week at verse 4 in the doctrine of election, where Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Now, as I said last week, the foundation of election is God's love for His people. He chooses because He loves. He does not love everybody. He does not choose everybody. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they are loved by God. And loved here is a perfect passive participle of the verb agapao, to love. The perfect focuses on the abiding results of that love and the fixed condition of being the grace recipients of God's love. If ever He loved you, He loves you forever. This is where it all starts. God loves His elect. This is a very different view than that which the world held at this time. See, the relationship people had with the gods of the ancient pagan pantheon was not based on love at all. They didn't feel that the deity demonstrated love to them or even did love them. To the contrary, the primary concern was to placate the gods and to solicit favors without any security concerning whether they would be disposed to a person favorably or otherwise. You just didn't know how they are going to respond to you. People believe that a God's influence over a human being could be either positive or negative. But our God, Yahweh, loves His people and always works together for their good. Now as we come this morning to verse 6, 
we see what mature disciples these Thessalonians had become. And I want to keep reminding you that there's difference of opinion on how long it had been since Paul wrote this letter, anywhere from six months, I've heard three months, I guess, three months to a year. But understand this, they're under a year old in the Lord, okay? And they are very, very mature believers. Now, if you do any study on Thessalonians, most of the commentators see verses 6 through 10 as what they would call evidences of election. In other words, they say, this is how we know these people are elect. Look at their lives. John MacArthur says this, how can you tell when someone is elect? How can you tell when someone is chosen by God? Or how can you tell when someone is genuinely saved? What are the distinguishing marks of the true brethren, God's true children? Now, and then of course he goes through verse 6 to 10 and says, these are the marks of the elect. You have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. Now, I will say that when you see someone living like the Thessalonians were living, I think you can pretty well be assured that they have been chosen by God. Unbelievers really don't pattern their lives after Christ, okay? The problem comes when you say that everyone who is not living like these Thessalonians is not a believer, okay? And you start deciding who's saved and who's not saved based on their lifestyle, when we say they are not imitating Christ so that they're not so then they must not be saved, I think that's wrong. So how do we answer John's question? How can you tell when someone is elect? How can you tell when someone is chosen by God? What is the evidence of election? It's a one-word answer. Faith. Thank you. Believing in Christ is the evidence of election. Let me prove that to you. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now the English Standard Version translates this correctly. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. The tenses here are very important. John uses the present tense... Everyone who believes. It conveys the idea that everyone who is presently believing in Yeshua has been born of God. So here the perfect tense is used, which all Greek students know generally refers to an event in the past time. The results of which persist to the present time. So we have a present tense, and we have a perfect tense. And the perfect tense would indicate that the that represented by the perfect tense is an event that occurred previously to the other. The tenses make it clear that the divine begetting is the antecedent, not the consequent, of the believing. And that's where most of the church has it wrong. If you just believe in the Lord, you'll be born again. No. If you're born again, you'll believe in the Lord. That's how it works. That's the biblical idea here. Has been born of God is a perfect passive indicative conveying a settled condition brought about by an outside agent, Yahweh. So let me state it like this. Everyone who is presently believing in Christ has been in the past born of God. 
So when people try to tell you what the evidence of election are, faith is the evidence of election. Anything else is the evidence of discipleship and someone who's really serious about their walk with the Lord. This verse teaches that faith is the result, the evidence of born again, not the reverse. In other words, we're not born again as a result of the faith. Birth, birth precedes believing because dead people can't really believe. You got that? And since we know that God only gives life, He's the only one who can give life, He's the only one who can give the new birth to those who are the elect, we know that everyone who believes in Christ has an eternity past been chosen by God. That is why now they believe. That is the evidence. And it doesn't mean that everybody who says they're a Christian is one. Okay? To believe in Christ, you have to know what the Bible says about Christ and who we are to believe in. So if someone tells you they're a Christian, don't just take that you know, at face value. Ask them, how do you know you're a Christian? What makes you a Christian? Let them explain it to you from Scripture. And if they're wrong, then you have an opportunity to share the Gospel with them. All Christians are called to live a life patterned after Christ. But few do. God calls all believers to be disciples. But few are. I said last week that I see a distinction in the Scriptures between a Christian and a disciple. A Christian is someone who believes in Christ. They understand the Gospel. They trust Him. A disciple is someone who follows Christ. Who lives for Christ. Who is dedicated to Christ. As we'll see, the Thessalonians were disciples. They were followers of Christ. They modeled Christ. Now we pick up our study this morning in verse 6 where he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The you here is emphatic. There's an emphatic contrast here between we, that he said in the previous two to five verses, and he said, you. This highlights the shift of emphasis from the apostolic proclamation to the reception of the message by the Thessalonians. He said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. I can't really think of a higher compliment that could be given these Thessalonians than to say this. I mean, what's okay, how do you compliment someone more than saying, well, you're imitating the Lord and us? The Greek word for imitators here is mimetes. It's a word from which we get our English word mimic. It means to mimic, to copy something. And what it denotes is an actor, an actor who spends time and energy studying a character with the view of reproducing it. So that's the idea. They are reproducing Christ in their life. And what the Thessalonians are doing, imitating the Lord, Paul really commands the Ephesians and all believers to do. We're all called to do this. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Your children, your loved children. So imitate God. Be here is a present imperative. It has the idea to become. So they are to develop continuously. In other words, this is the goal of our Christian life. This should be happening in our Christian life. We're developing into imitators of Yahweh. Now, the Thessalonians, who were brand new Christians, they're already doing this. 
When people see us, they should see Yahweh. I heard a preacher a couple weeks ago say, we're not called to be like God, nobody can do that. And I thought, wow, that seems weird, because I know Paul told the Ephesians to be imitators of God. We are called to be like God, okay? And we can be like that if we're walking in the Spirit. Now, speaking about being the image of God, N.T. Wright states this, It seems to me that God has put humans like an angled mirror in His world so that God can reflect His love and care and stewardship on the world through humans and so that the rest of the world can praise the Creator through humans. In other words, they're to see God in us. Paul knew the importance of example in teaching others. He told the Corinthians that he was their father in the gospel, and then he added this, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now you might think, well, that's kind of arrogant, isn't it? Why Aren't we supposed to imitate God? Well, that's why Paul said in 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, you follow me because I'm following Christ. So just watch my example, follow that. He was imitating Christ who was the perfect image of Yahweh. Paul was living out this command that he was giving to believers. He's imitating Christ. Now notice what he told the Philippians. In Philippians 4.9 What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Basically, Paul is looking at the people he's discipling, the people he trained, and he said, here's what I want you to do. Do what I do. The constant call of the Christian is to be like Yahweh. It's Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the image of our Father. All humans are God's imagers, but since the fall, only believers who have the Spirit can really do this well. This means that we need to be doing a good job at this because lost man totally bears the image of God in vain. So we're called to do it. Do what I do. That's the call. He says, whatever you learned, whatever you received, whatever you heard, just do it. Practice it. Practice what I'm living out. What does this look like practically? And you say, we're to model Yeshua. We're to be like Him. Well, as Christians, as children of the Heavenly Father, we have a duty to imitate Him. So the only way we can do that is we're familiar with the Gospels. That's where you're going to see the Lord in the Gospels. So you've got to be familiar with that, the Gospels. And then we're to walk like He walked in the Gospels. If He is compassionate, we as His image bearers are to be compassionate. If He's loving, we're to be loving. If He's holy, we're to be holy. If He's kind, we're to be kind. And if He's forgiving, we are to be forgiving because we are to bear His image. So when people look at us, they see that's what their God is like. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another. This is a verse that should be posted on every Christian internet group. Okay? Let's just start out the group by going over. You've got to memorize this verse before you can join the group. Be kind to one another. Calling someone a moron, an imbecile, all these things because they disagree with you is not being kind. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, tender-hearted here means to have genuine concern for another person's well-being. It means being sympathetic to the needs of others. 
It's the opposite of being calloused. We're to display Him in all that we say and do. This is what it means to imitate Yahweh. And just because you're dealing with other believers doesn't mean you don't need to imitate the Father. That's still your calling. We, we, we are to do it before the non-believing world, of course, but we're to do it before believers also, because I think a lot of believers definitely need to see the image. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. This shows us that Paul's message included discipleship. There was a sense in which Paul personally led these Thessalonian Christians in their spiritual life. They could see his life and were invited to learn from his example. He says, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This begins with an adverbial participle that shows how they became imitators of the apostles and of the Lord. This emphasizes here, it appears to fall on the condition they were when they received the message. In much affliction. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. How did you become imitators? And that you received the word in the midst of affliction. And we see the evidence here that we talked about earlier. Faith, he says, for you received the word. Received is dekomai, which means to readily receive information, to regard it as true, to receive it readily, to accept, to believe. They received the message, literally the word here, that's not talking about the written word of the New Testament, which was not in existence yet, but the gospel message of the death, burial, resurrection of Yeshua, the second member of the triune God. They received the word, he says, in the midst of much affliction. Now, the word affliction here is from the Greek word flipsis, which means pressure, literally or figuratively. It means anguish, burden, persecution, tribulation, trouble. This word flipsis is used outside the Bible, denotes literal pressure, that of a severe kind. The corresponding verb, for example, was used of pressing grapes in winemaking until they burst open. That's the kind of pressure, okay? And so metaphorically, it came to mean very great trouble. You receive the word, he says, in the midst of this huge affliction. Now, the verse doesn't end with affliction, but goes on to say, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, this joy is given by the Holy Spirit, is encompassing and complete It sustains people in the midst of the great persecution and pain. It's a joy unaffected by circumstances. Now, when you think of Christian persecution and suffering, what do you often think of? Does joy come to your mind? Probably not, but it should. Because in the Bible, there's an unmistakable connection between persecution and joy. Notice how the apostles responded to persecution. Acts 5.40 When they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Okay, they didn't just yell at them and scold them. They beat them. Alright? And charged them, after they beat them, they charged them not to speak in the name of Yeshua, and then they let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, 
And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Yeshua. They warned them, they beat them and warned them, don't teach anymore. And they said, hallelujah. And they kept right on preaching. They're severely beaten and their response is to rejoice. What on earth is wrong with these people? How do you describe people whose values are so counterculture that they rejoice over the privilege of being beaten in public? Are they sadomasochists? What else would cause this type of response? What, why did they seem so different from us? Not long before coming to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas personally experienced the principle of having the joy of the Holy Spirit in the presence of much affliction. In Acts 16, 22-25, it says, The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. What they would do, they'd have a bundle of rods with a sword in the middle of the bundle. So when they got hit, the, the rods would kind of separate and the sword would slice. But it would keep it from going too deep, but it would just keep tearing the skin all open and they'd just continue to beat you with these bundle of rods. So that's what they do to them. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. This is a, there's no windows, it's down deep, it's dark, it's nasty down there, okay? And fastened their feet in the stocks, okay? So here you are, you're beaten, they put you in the stocks, separate you, you know, you're stretched out here. You know, there wasn't a bell down there when they needed to go to the bathroom that they could, you know, ring the bell. Hey, excuse me, I, I need to use the restroom. No, you're just there, okay? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I bet they were listening. Can you imagine? They beat them, they put them in stocks in the inner prison, and they sang praises to God. You know, Paul, God had told him to go into Macedonia. To preach the gospel. He's obedient. He does what he's told. And now he's beaten and he's stuck in prison. What's your response? God, you wanted me to do this. I do it. Now look what happened. Why is this going on, God? Let me ask you something. Is there any significance here that it's at midnight they sing and praise God? I think Paul lived the word. Psalm 119.62 says at midnight, I rise to praise you. Because of your righteous rules. Would this be your response to persecution? Many of the early Christians viewed suffering as a gift from God. They expected persecution. They regarded it as a badge of honor. Now the theme of joy and suffering appears in Jewish literature. You find it a lot in the Jewish literature. But the source of this teaching in the New Testament is the Lord Himself. Yeshua prepared His disciples for hardship and persecution when He said in Matthew 5, 10-12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
The word persecuted appears three times in this section, which means that Yeshua is putting great emphasis upon it. The Greek word translated persecute in this verses comes from dioko, which means to pursue or to chase away. Over time, it came to mean to harass, to treat in an evil manner. In the New Testament, it's used of inflicting suffering on people who hold beliefs that the establishment frowns upon. It's the kind of persecution which Yahweh speaks of here. Now, the Greek text contains a perfect passive participle. Yeshua's words could be translated as follow. Blessed are they who have been willing and continue to be willing to allow themselves to be persecuted. They're blessed. They're not cursed. They're not damned. They're blessed. The perfect tense indicates an ongoing attitude. And the passive voice speaks of being willing to accept whatever comes as a result of living out Christ's commands. When Paul led people to Christ... He followed up by telling them, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul taught his disciples this. They knew this was part of the Christian life. Paul wasn't preaching a health, wealth gospel. People weren't becoming Christians because, man, I get a new Cadillac and I'll never be sick again. No, they were signing up for some persecution. Speaking of his own trials, Paul wrote this, Romans 5, 3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. What the heck? Why would you do that? Huh? Knowing, here's why they rejoice, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It wasn't just Paul, though. He wasn't some, some kind of masochist who was out to you know, get a good beating. James wrote this, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, this suffering is going to mature you. Peter wrote to believers who were suffering horrible persecution under Nero. And he says this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now you may be thinking, This persecution was just something that the early church went through, but the joy of these saints in the midst of their tribulations is the same joy that we hear about every Sunday from the persecuted church. You hear from believers today in Egypt and in China, and are they cowering, are they hiding? No! They're praising their God and they're going on with their life at the threat of torture and death. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Yeshua will be persecuted. Now, this verse does not say that all Christians can expect persecution. What does it say? It says all who live godly. Okay, you catch the difference, right? All who live godly 
will be persecuted. It's godliness that brings suffering. It's Christ-likeness that brings suffering. When you stand with God and speak out against sin, you're going to be persecuted. If you fit in with your co-workers, if you fit in with those people in your neighborhood, if you act like them, talk like them, and don't deal with sin, then no one's going to persecute you. But when you speak out against abortion, when you say homosexuality is not an alternative lifestyle, it's a sin. When you say men are men and women are women and that's it. When you say there's no such thing as a same-sex marriage, because marriage is a man and a woman, you're going to suffer for it. Expect that. People are going to come against you because that's not society. In our culture, they will try to cancel you, okay? If you say anything against the norms today, they try to cancel you like you're irrelevant, you don't matter. We do matter. And we're called to stand up against the sin of our culture. Paul assumes that suffering is an essential part of discipleship. This is the constant emphasis of Scripture. And separately joined to discipleship are hardship, trial, difficulty, conflict, pain, Why? Because we're living in a culture that hates God. Anti-God, anti-Christ culture. So if you're living for Him, you're going to bring problems on yourself. But you don't have to. You can just keep your mouth shut, go along with everybody else, go along with their jokes, go along with whatever they say, and yeah, you're fine. No persecution. But when believers do stand up in the midst of the pain, they can have great joy. We see this all through Scripture. How do they do this? Well, first of all, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? We know that. So I think when we're controlled by the Spirit, when the Spirit is controlling our lives, you have joy. But, also think of this, the Spirit uses the Word to be controlled by, to control you. So if you don't have any of the Word of God in you, if you're not spending time in the Word of God, it's going to be hard for the Spirit of God to control you because He uses the Word. We must understand what the Spirit teaches about suffering. And this may be hard to grasp, but the Bible teaches that suffering is a gift from God. So if you want to have joy, it's a product of the Spirit, but the Spirit brings this product forth to those who understand and know the Word, and what you have to know about suffering and persecution is it's a gift of God's grace. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? But I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Look at Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted. This is the Greek verb harizomai, which comes from haris, which means grace. So, Horizomai is grace. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says, Horizomai primarily denotes to show favor or kindness, as in Galatians 3.18, to give freely, bestow graciously. Listen, let me tell you what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that suffering is a gift of God's grace. Now, do you think of your times of trouble, of persecution, as a gift? Not very likely, probably. But that's the problem, because we don't understand that suffering is a gift. God says that it is, and so you just have to, do you believe him or not? 
Look at, he says, it's been granted. It's, it's a grace gift to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, so it's grace that you believe. We understand that, right? The only reason anybody believes is because of the gift of God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But he says, all and in him, but also suffer. So believing and suffering here are both grace gifts. You say, I kind of like the one. I don't really like the other too much. Well, sorry, it's a package deal. It's a grace. It's been granted to you. Not only to believe, but also to suffer. Suffering is a gift. It's a privilege. So when you think of a gift, what do you think of? Well, it's something that reveals the giver's love for you. A gift is undeserved. It's not earned. A gift should cause thankfulness and gratitude. Right? When's the last time you thanked God when you were suffering? God, thank you. Thank you that you, you just, the persecution at work is tremendous. I praise you for that. Because it means I'm making a difference. If this is the nature of gift, how does Paul say that suffering is a gift of God? God giving suffering as a gracious gift doesn't make sense to us. That we should be grateful for it. That it should make us feel honored and blessed. That we should see it as a manifestation of God's love. That doesn't make sense to us, but that is what the Scriptures teach. Suffering is a gift of His grace. He uses these things to mature us. Notice carefully what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. Okay, Paul's been suffering. We just read about that. For we were so utterly burdened, beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Paul says, I thought we were going to die. We thought they are going to kill us. It was that bad. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now the word that here is in the Greek, it's hina, which can be translated in order that we would not trust in ourselves. So why was all this persecution coming upon him? Paul says, we got this on us. We, we were pushed to the point of death, so we trust God, not us. So you see the value of suffering, the value of persecution. It turns your eyes off yourself and onto God. They help us grow because they cause us to turn to God. Sometimes in our stubborn pride, we've got to be crushed really low before we start saying, God, I, I kind of need help here. All of our problems help us to learn to trust in God. Just as the athlete strengthens his muscle by putting them to the limits, so God strengthens our faith by pushing it to the limits. And only trials can do this. Pain is a way of forcing us to clarify where our trust lies. Now, during his relatively short time in Thessalonica, Paul had taught these new believers to expect afflictions because he says, we've been destined for this. He says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we're to suffer affliction. So Paul drove this into their heads. Just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So, again, I think it's pretty clear that Paul was not preaching a health-wealth gospel here, okay? 
He wasn't saying, look, folks, if you can sign up now, you're going to be blessed by God. You're going to have perfect health. You're going to have all the money in the world because that's what Christianity is all about. You know, who wants to sign up? I'm sure there'd be a lot of them, but he said, no, no, I'm warning you. I'm going to tell you. I kept telling you, you're going to suffer affliction. The health, wealth gospel is a lie. It is sickening. It is demonic that you would, people will tell you, you just serve God and God will do all these things for you. That's the draw? The disciples didn't understand this. Apostles didn't understand this. And then what happens when their life is not blessed, as the preacher says that it will be, they just figure, can Christianity must not be true. I'm not being blessed with health or wealth or none of this stuff. Seems the preacher is. It's a kind of a pyramid scheme, you know. If you give me your money, then you'll be blessed. I like that. Wow, that's a way to do it, right? <laughs> and people don't seem to catch on. He's the only one getting blessed, okay? We're all suffering and he's making all the money. Christ's disciples experienced the joy of the Holy Spirit as they encountered difficulty and persecution. Because they, they were taught that. In verse 7 he says, so that. So we move on here to 7. And this flows from the statement of verse 6, as evident by the word so that, which is hosta here. It points here to the actual result. You became examples. This is the only verse, the only verse in the New Testament where a congregation is viewed as a model for other churches. This was an exceptional church in the way they responded to persecution. Molded by the example of the Lord, of Paul, of Silas, and Timothy, they themselves now have become models for other churches. They're less than a year old. And they're modeling the Christian life. I know people have been Christians their whole life and they're not even, there's not even a hint that they're living for the Lord or modeling Christ. You became an example. By responding to the gospel in the midst of persecution as they did. In other words, they know if I trust Christ, it's going to cost me, but that's what I'm doing because this is what it's about. God had called them, they trusted Him. These Thessalonians became an example to all kinds of believers. You know, often believers' most powerful testimony is during times of pain, trial, and persecution. You know, when you, everything is going your way. You know, you got all the money, all the hell, everything's fine for you, and you're, you know, praise the Lord, your neighbors look at you like, yeah, who wouldn't? But when your life is being crushed by the circumstances of life, and you're, praise God, thank God, our God is great. Your neighbors scratch their head and they're like, what is wrong with them? There must be something to this Christianity. They praise Him in the midst of the storm. That makes an impact. Because people want a life like that. They want a life that you know, can deal with the circumstances of life and not be crushed and not you know, need a, a bunch of pills to make it through life. A Christ-like reaction to trials, that's a powerful factor in influencing other people in the gospel. So you became an example. The word example here is from the Greek word tupos. 
And tupas means example or pattern. Its original use had reference to an impression or a mark made by a blow. Okay, if I take a hammer, bang, I hit something, it leaves a mark. That's a tupas. But the word can sometimes be rendered mold, which is a pattern of something that has a purpose of reproducing more identical patterns. Okay, when I was a kid, mom would make Christmas cookies. We had these little molds, these little patterns, okay? Roll out the dough, then we had like a, it looked like a Christmas tree. Boom, stamp it, pull it out, pull it. It's a Christmas tree. I don't care how many times you did it, they all were identical. Because the mold, they're all from the same mold, okay? And that's the idea here. That everything comes out shaped the same because it's a mold, it's a pattern. Our lives have a purpose oriented beyond ourselves, beyond our own holiness and well-being, we're to become molds for others who are not Christians or who are younger Christians than we are. Because they see that pattern and they say that's what it's supposed to be like. The essence of discipleship is imitation. That's what you want as a, a, a discipler. You want people to imitate what you're teaching them when you're training them. Unless we are imitators of Christ, we leave a false impression. We leave a wrong mark on people as to what Christianity really is. Every one of us is called to be an example to others. Sometimes you don't even know you're being an example to other people. The church in Thessalonica was a model Christian community for other congregations. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Paul was always thanking God for these people. Brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. Man, it, you, just, you people are amazing, and the persecution comes in, you just keep being a pattern. You keep being a mold. You keep demonstrating the Christ-like life. Paul says they were an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Macedonia and Achaia, they're Roman provinces. Achaia is located within modern Greece. Macedonia is a political state independent of Greece, although culturally and economically related. We'll talk about this more in a second here. Let's go to verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need say, we need not say anything. This verse is an explanation of how the Thessalonians became examples to such a large area. He says, from you. Now, this doesn't mean by you. Okay, so I guess what I'm trying to say here is, this doesn't mean that the Thessalonians became missionaries and they're foreign missionaries. and They're going out to all these lands preaching the gospel. What happened was, they were preaching the gospel in their hometown to sailors, to travelers who came in large numbers to this metropolitan city. So that's all they had to do was preach where they lived, and then these people were carrying the gospel all over the place. He says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. Sounded forth is the Greek word 
exahelmai, which occurs nowhere else in biblical literature. It's the only time this word is used. But it's related to echo. It carries connotations of a loud, resounding noise, whether of ocean waves, howling dogs, the uproar of a crowd, or the repeated blowing of trumpets. Stott notes that echo can refer also to rolling thunder and to a resounding gong. It explains that the good news announced by Paul's readers was like a loud noise which seemed to reverberate through the hills and valleys of Greece. So sounded forth is a perfect passive indicative which implies that their joy amidst trials of the gospel through their joy amidst the trials sounded forth and still sounds forth the gospel. It seems like Paul saw the Thessalonians as amplifiers, if you would, who first received the gospel message, but then sent it reverberating on its way with increased power and scope, much like an echo would be throughout the mountains. Your faith in God, he says, has gone forth everywhere. No doubt the wide circulation of their faith was facilitated by the possession of a significant Mediterranean seaport and by its location on the Ignatian Way the main road from Rome to the eastern part of the empire. So people were going east on the Ignatian Highway to the Orient, and they were going west on the Ignatian Highway, and they were going north coming out of the Aegean Sea and bringing their boat into port there at Thessalonica, and then going up into Europe and through there, they were taking ships out and going to the Mediterranean. The word was just being carried everywhere. He says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Even the Indians in America heard about it. No. (laughs) This is a metaphorical exaggeration. This is what's called hyperbole. And yes, the writers of Scripture use hyperbole all the time. All right, the Bible is an Eastern book. We have to keep that in mind. And it often uses figurative language. We need to be careful of Western literalism. Oh, look at this. The gospel went everywhere. Native Americans are hearing the gospel. No! Nobody's discovered America yet, okay? They, they can't take the gospel there, all right? So forget about that. I think the point here is the gospel went forth from the Thessalonians, not only to the Macedonian and Achaia, but it went to a bunch of other lands. The known world at that time was being covered with these travelers who were going out carrying the gospel. And again, these Thessalonians didn't have to leave home. They just had to go down to the docks and start sharing the gospel with these sailors. Or go by the Ignatian Highway and the travelers are coming in and going out and they're just sharing. And then the gospel is being carried everywhere. Paul says that we need not say anything. People are telling Paul how effective the Thessalonians had become at spreading the gospel ever since they had heard it from him. They were so effective at this that Paul felt his his ministry of pioneer evangelism wasn't even really needed in that area anymore. I mean, he said, so that we don't have to say anything. I mean, it's just the gospel's going out. You're doing it. When a group of Christians faces trials with joyous faith, unbelievers take notice because it's an amazing exception to the way that the unbelieving world faces suffering. So in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their persecution, they're just gladly sharing. It, that doesn't, the persecution doesn't shut them up. 
It doesn't make them be quiet. You get a lot less beatings if you just quiet. Don't let anybody know you're Christian. God knows you're cool with that. No. They're going out and they're evangelizing. They're telling the world and it's spreading. I love it. Paul says, we don't even need to say anything. Can you imagine Paul saying, I don't need to say anything. The gospel's doing great. You guys are doing a good job. All right, so these Thessalonians, again, under a year old, three months old to a year old, they're fleshing out Christ, which means Paul taught them enough doctrine in the short time he was there. Timothy was also there for a little time. Taught them enough doctrine that they understood and they were living for Christ. I mean, you go to your average church, your average Bible study now, you won't learn enough doctrine to get you to 7-Eleven, okay? Let alone to imitate Christ. Because we've watered everything down because we think people are stupid. They can't handle the truth, so we just water it all down for them. Paul didn't have that view. He talks about election the first thing, and you're like, well, Paul, you shouldn't talk about that. There's Arminians out there. Paul says, well, I don't care. I'm giving them the truth, too. He taught them about the deity of Christ, about the Trinity, about the doctrines of election. He taught them doctrine because he knew if they're going to grow up, they need teaching. And they, because they had the teaching, they're imitating God and they're an example to everybody. People, this is the church to imitate. All right, if you're going to put a name on the church, don't put the first church of Corinth. That's not a good name, all right? That doesn't that tells you you got a bunch of lousy people in your ministry there, all right? If you want to name the church, call it the First Church of the Thessalonians. That'd be a good church to name after because this is a solid group of people. And people, here's the thing. They're doing this, we're called to do this. Right? He tells them they're doing this, but in Ephesians, he says, "Listen, we're all all Christians are to be imitators of God." They're doing it, can we do it? Did they have something that we don't have? Well, they did have something we don't have, persecution. That drove them, I think. But understand, as Paul taught Timothy, this kind of life will bring suffering. And by suffering, you know, I don't think anybody's going to beat you with rods. Okay? I don't think you can go through some of the things that they went through. What they'll do is at work, they don't want to hang around with you anymore. Oh, you're saying that this is wrong, and okay, I don't, you know. They'll disassociate from you. You won't get invited to things anymore because, you know, you want to talk about that, you know, Yeshua stuff all the time. They don't want to hear it. So you'll maybe be ostracized a little, you know, they'll tell jokes when you're not around. Uh, They'll separate from you, and you just feel so bad. And as soon as you get to heaven, you can go to the apostles and tell them how rough you had it. And they'll show you the scars. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, we know so little about suffering for our faith. Oh, Father, help us to honor you, Lord. Help us to realize that we are called to model you to a lost and dying world. We might be the only Christ they'll ever see. They're not reading their Bibles. May they see you in us. May they be drawn to you because of a godly lifestyle of ours. Thank you, Father, for the incredible privilege you have given us to be your image bearers. Amen.